Peter and John were going up to the temple at three o'clock in the afternoon, the established prayer time. Meanwhile, a man crippled since birth was being carried in. Every day people would place him at the temple gate, known as the beautiful gate, so he could ask for money from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he began to ask them for a gift. Peter and John stared at him. Peter said, look at us. So the man gazed at them, expecting to receive something from them. Peter said, I don't have any money, but I will give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, rise up and walk. Then he grasped the man's right hand and raised him up. At once his feet and ankles became strong. Jumping up, he began to walk around. He entered the temple with them, leaping, walking, leaping, and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God. They recognized him as the same one who used to sit at the temple's beautiful gate asking for money. They were filled with amazement and surprise at what had happened to him. While the healed man clung to Peter and John, all the people rushed toward them at Solomon's porch, completely amazed. Seeing this, Peter addressed the people, You Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why are you staring at us as if we made him walk by our own power or piety? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus. This is the one you handed over and rejected and denied to in Pilate's presence, even though he had already decided to release him. You rejected the holy and righteousness one and asked that a murderer be released to you instead. You killed the author of life, the very one whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. His name itself has made this man strong. That is because of faith in Jesus' name. God has strengthened this man whom you see and know. The faith that comes through Jesus gave him complete health right before your eyes. God's word for God's people. Amen. So there was a cover story this week in New York Magazine called The Return of FOMO, The Fear of Missing Out. The point being that now as we continue to emerge from more than a year of being locked down, siloed, separated, socially distanced, where there hasn't been a whole lot of things to do, or at least the things that we could do, we could normally do in sweatpants or with our cameras off. Now there are things to do. It's all happening and it's been difficult to catch up to social speed, right? I remember one of the many things that I mourned in this last year there were, of course, major and obvious things to mourn and personal things to mourn and societal things to mourn. But one of the personal, more subtle losses was the loss of threshold places and not on purpose encounters with people. There were no more run-ins. You didn't accidentally see someone in the gym or the grocery store or the Museum of Life and Science or a coffee shop This really cut into my alternate office, my remote office game. Coco Cinnamon and Co-op were shut down, so I actually had to be in my office. And I don't think you have to be like a rabid extrovert to crave these sorts of connections, 
these like thin connections. The writer Eric Jacobson, he talks about these sorts of encounters are vital for our sense of belonging in a place. These ecosystems of belonging involve like really thick, deep connections, like family, the people that know us and that we can bear our soul to, but they also involve these civic friendships. The, the mail carrier who you know by face and not by name, even though they know everything about you, or the, the person bagging groceries, or just the neighbor walking dogs, their presence is important, even if you don't know their name. When I first moved to Durham, I worked at a coffee shop for a few years, and I got some of the best like proto-ministry training there at that coffee shop. If you ask Rach, um, to this day, I'll see a former customer at just out and about randomly, and I can tell you what their order is and how to make it, even if I can't tell you their name. Sometimes I can tell you their name. And, and, and again, that's this ecosystem of belonging. These, these, these people that are around us, that we see, that we have some level of acknowledgement and knowing. So we continue in our Acts story following Pentecost, and we find, as N.T. Wright mentioned in his Gifford lectures, that Jesus' followers are in the process of establishing a new thing, a network of worship-based, ethically rigorous, egalitarian, philanthropic, fictive kinship groups. Church for, church for short. That's what we're doing right here, all of those fancy things. The Spirit has descended upon them and many signs and wonders are being performed and this new people are meeting together in temple and in homes, maybe even in parking lots. They're sharing food with gladness and simplicity. They're sharing possessions. They're sharing life. And daily people are being saved and becoming part of it. This sounds downright utopian. No wonder the early church gets so often romanticized. And then we get a, a, a real boots-on-the-ground story of Peter and John headed up to the temple to pray. As was their custom at, like during the time associated with prayer, note these are average, uneducated, blue-collar Jews going to synagogue to pray. Too often we assume that this new church thing started to happen from scratch, but not for them. It was new, but this was also a logical outpouring of the serious faith that they'd already known. They were doing faithful things that God followers do. I think this is kind of a helpful thing to remember for us. It's helpful to situate our Gentile, mostly Christian faith inside of the story of God's faithfulness to the Jewish people. And it's also helpful to situate our lives of faith and our lives of fidelity that are sometimes shift and sometimes change and sometimes grow and sometimes evolve. Sometimes it feels like one step up and two steps back. But it's, it's tempting to think that our movement inside of the faith, either 
in maturity or D in reconstruction needs to be something altogether new or apart from the old when actually faithfulness happens inside of all of this. Faithfulness is not just like blind loyalty to the past, but it is an answering the call of shalom given and also despite our past. And that's a little bit of what's happening in this early church life. That's okay. So Peter and John head to church to pray. And when they head to church to pray, they approach the beautiful gate. This is the threshold between common and sacred. The beautiful gate. I love that the idea, I, I love the idea that beauty is a signifier for this kind of entry in this borderland. That beauty has to be our entry point into communion with God and each other. Beauty. The gate which we enter through. So often we assume that beauty is kind of just there. It's just for our amusement or adornment. But I think there's wisdom in the words of one of my professors who served in some of London's poorest neighborhoods. He says, if you can't make it happy and you can't always make it happy, at least make it beautiful. Beauty will always be an option, even when happiness or per perfection or the way we thought things should have been is not an, an option. Beauty is possible because beauty is always forming. It's always being revealed. It's always bred by grace and possibility and the presence of a generative God. If God is there, beauty is there. So right on the cusp of this beautiful gate, Peter and John meet a man that they've seen, but they've never known. Maybe you might consider this one of those civic friendships. They know this man by face, and maybe he knows them by face, but they don't know him. Notice a few things that happen here. Notice first their pace. They slow down to be able to see him. Second, notice their, their vision. They are not only seen by the man... It says the man saw them, but they see him. They stare at him, maybe for the first time. This civic friendship deepens. And notice their improvisation. They, they went to the temple to pray. They didn't go to get into all of this. They were put on the spot. They're asked what they can give, and here's where many of us get nervous. We don't know what to say. We're not used to having to ask for much so this request feels awkward or imposing might have us negotiate what we actually do have or otherwise move in a way that seems callous if we pretend like we don't have stuff so this is a this beautiful gate is a is a liminal space it's an in-between area with someone who is suffering and in need and someone who has become part of the wallpaper of this setting. No longer seen, a fixture. But Peter and John stare at him. They slow down and they stare at him. And maybe some of the same faculties that they gain at Pentecost in their ears and in their tongues are now invigorated in their eyes and their imaginations. Maybe just as they could talk and hear with all those people speaking differently and they could understand it, 
maybe now they can see and know because of the work of that common spirit. The spirit shared by both them and this crippled man. The spirit that puts them in common in the shadow of the gate called beautiful on the doorstep between quote-unquote real life and the worship of the living God. It makes me wonder where the beautiful gates in our lives could be. Where are those places where pain and beauty meet? Where are the places begging for our presence and imagination and courage and encounter and intimacy? Where are those places that Jesus might take and bless and break and give something as common as an acquaintance and turn it into family? Where are those places of excess and grace and surprise, those thin places where Jesus might even use you and me to participate in healing and wholeness for ourselves and for others? Here at this thin place, this beautiful gate, the man asked for a gift. Maybe when he asks for a gift, maybe he's asking for more than he even knows. Maybe their response is, even more than they know. Because they don't have flash, they don't have cash, they don't have silver or gold, but they give him what they have. And I think when they give them what they have, when we give what we have, it is simultaneously much less and infinitely more than anyone is expecting. This is the stock in trade of those who walk in Jesus' spirit. This man asks for Caesar's gifts, and to be fair, they will feed him, they might clothe him, but they will also ensure that he will return to his perch outside of the temple, isolated in his suffering and need and unincluded. But Peter and John, they, they open up for this man the gifts of God, not Caesar's gifts. These gifts of God that are unimaginable to him, therefore unasked for. These are gifts not only that his, that his body might now work, but also that he has the ability to leap and to praise and to enter into belong and to be part of God's worshiping community. They've given him the gift of healing in a whole sense, physical and social and spiritual. They've given him what they have, all that they have. And I think, aside from how, how impressive this healing story is and these healing stories are throughout the, the New Testament, we read the Gospels. Go through Luke's Gospel and see this ministry of healing. Go through Mark's Gospel and see this ministry of exorcism. Go through John's Gospel and see this ministry of signs and wonders. But what's most impressive about all of these stories and each of them is that they're not just cool or kind tricks. They signal the arrival of Jesus' new kingdom reality. And they continue on through Acts. Like I think for this story, we talked a few weeks ago about how in Acts, one of the most special things that's happening is that this is that reality that's happening. That, that in Pentecost, it's a what is happening is the long-awaited-for uh, reality of God's Spirit being poured out on all flesh, sons and daughters, old and young, 
and, and this enlivening of dry bones. And all of those spirit expectations are coming to fruition at Pentecost. Namely, this is that. And so all of these healing stories and acts are also a this is that. The <laughs> when, when Peter and, and John say, we don't have silver or gold to give you, but we give you what we have, Luke 9 rings in my ears when Jesus is training his disciples, is training us, and he says, go out and take nothing with you for the journey, no walking stick, no bag, no bread, no money, not even an extra shirt. And go and give what you have. <laughs> this is that also with Isaiah 35 and the response of this man. Isaiah says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf, the deaf unstopped. And then the lame men shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless shall sing with joy. So when this man is hooping and hollering outside and on into the temple, this is that. The kingdom has arrived, has broken in, and is beginning to, to heal. This is how the top comes off. And each act carries a whole history of expectation. This happened in Jesus' preaching and his healing ministry, and now it's happening in his disciples, and it continues to happen by the Spirit among the church throughout the world. There's this story that may or may not happen always be cautious of these stories that are great preaching illustrations but apparently Thomas Aquinas one of the one of the great doctors of the church uh, was was witnessing Pope Innocent II counting out stacks of money and and this Pope of his time said no longer would the church be known as a place that can say Silver and gold, I have none. And then Thomas Aquinas looked at him, and I got to think he looked over his glass and said, true, Holy Father, but neither can she say to, to the lame, rise up and walk anymore either, right? And so even now, even in a place like America with affluence, even in a time like ours with skepticism, <laughs> even now, the kingdom is breaking in, and God is working in our midst by this spirit, this, this surprising spirit that asks us to give everything that we have. I do want to flag, though, that this, this passage could, could be used in a, in a weird way that is like maybe some kind of crafty case of spiritual bypassing. Like saying, saying to someone, your actual physical problem isn't as much of a problem as your spiritual problem, so let's just pray about it. And <laughs> lest, we, lest we think that that's what's going on or use this that, that way, I think this, this statement, this silver or gold I don't have, but I give you what I have, I think it always requires of us kind of a, a twofold inventory of assets. For us, we have to ask, what do I have to give? What concrete things do I have to offer? Do I have money, extra money? Do I have time, extra time, or expertise, or training, or experience, or my networks, or skills? What do I have to offer someone in need? What gifts can be brought into th this, this is that experience? of this inbreaking kingdom to alleviate suffering, 
and to bring about healing and to foster intimacy? These are some of the questions we're asking as we come alongside this family from Myanmar. What, what as a community, what are these pieces? What do we have to offer? And to that, Peter and John are not against material aid. To argue that they are would be to ignore the immediately preceding passage and that everyone was sharing and no one had anything in need any longer because they were sharing. So Peter and John's statement, we give what we have, should require us to search what we actually have and to give generously from what we've been given. But yet there's another sense that we need to do this deep asset inventory. We need to understand what we have by understanding who we are. We possess this deep gift of the Spirit's power. It's the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That's, that's what Peter's speech uh, includes after this man is raised to, to newness and joy. He says, this Jesus, the Nazarene, is the one who was raised by the Spirit. And we possess this Spirit, this Spirit of power, this Spirit of adoption into the family of God, this Spirit that forgives our sins and heals our wounds. And this is a Spirit that motivates us also to reach out and to open up that experience to others who haven't had such a good seat at the feast to taste and see that the Lord is good. So in this sense, to give what you have is to offer up the good news that has you. To embrace and care and into the community that you've been knit into. To withhold any of these things, even while throwing a dollar into a hat, is a scandal. And while this experience is common for us all this call is common for us all it's also custom you don't have to be a professional there's no script or canned speech you don't have to be any other sort of witness than you are but you are called to be a witness you just have to give what you have you have to give what you've seen and what you've known and what you've experienced you have to give from the years of prayers that you've asked for and some of them that have been answered and you, you can give of the stories of the prayers that you're so glad they aren't answered because you'd be in a much worse spot if, if what you prayed for five years ago came to be. You can give from the doubt and you can give from the fear and you can give from the exploration and you can give from the experiences that you've been met by the risen Christ. Remember, this is, this is a Peter story, so you can also give from the lessons that you've learned and the ways that you've messed up. You can give from the forgiveness that you've received, the ways you've denied Christ, and, and you can give a, a full story of Jesus welcoming, welcoming you back, not only into the fold, but as a sheep feeder. And you can give from the wonder and the beauty and the adventure that this kingdom life still holds ahead and calls us all into together. That's, that's this deep well from which we can give. You just have to give what you have. Will you all pray with me?
Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for this story that is challenging to us and also exciting for us. Ways that you meet us and see us and heal us. Ways that you're growing your family. Lord, I, I can't help but think about the ways that, that this story feels like the next chapter of the Good Samaritan story, and I can't help but, but feel a little bit of um, pressure, but also anticipation the ways that you're working those stories in our everyday lives. You might just do that today. You might just do that this week. Or give us the attention and courage to slow down, to see people and the imagination to, to give of what we have. Thanks, thanks for giving us so much. Thanks for giving us your son. Thanks for giving us your spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.